Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell and you're listening to episode 51 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes for people who love history and a good story but have neither the time nor the interest to pick up dry, dusty history books. This special episode of the Popecast is sponsored once again by Catholic Bomb Co., the very best in beard bombs, oils, lotion bars, and more when you head over to catholicbomb.co to check out their great variety of products. Be sure to enter the word Pope, P-O-P-E, at checkout and you'll get 10% off your entire order. So once again, that's catholicbomb.co and the word Pope at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Bomb Co. for sponsoring the Popecast. This week on the Popecast, we have a very special guest joining us today in author Joe Heschmeyer, a fellow Pope nerd like you and me, who's just written a great book on the papacy entitled Pope Peter, Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in a Time of Crisis. Joe was once a litigator living in Washington, D.C., and then was a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas City in Kansas, but he now teaches at the Holy Family School of Faith in Kansas City, Missouri, and continues to run the popular blog Shameless Popery. We hope you enjoy this great conversation with Joe Heschmeyer. Well, Joe Heschmeyer, thanks for being a guest on the podcast. Absolutely, my pleasure. Yeah, I, I was excited to hear. Uh, I know lots of listeners to the podcast listen to classical theism as well. Um, obviously, I've been a guest on there a couple of times, so um, it was exciting to hear that you'd written a book on Pope Peter. Um, and I thought that would be a, a perfect topic for um, for an episode on the podcast and, and nerding out on all things papacy. There's not very many of us who <laughs> like to do that. So, uh, yeah, so I thought we, our, our listeners might enjoy um, a conversation and hopefully we'll enjoy the book. Um, but I wanted to start, the first question I kind of had for you today was, your latest book is called Pope Peter, Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine in a Time of Crisis. And you personally have operated a blog called Shameless Popery. For the listeners, that's P-O-P-E-R-Y, not um, Popery, the smelly stuff, right? But you've run that blog for years now. So how did you get to this point? How did Joe Heschmeyer get to this point in 2020? Uh, what led you to focus so intently on the the papacy in particular? So the original title of the blog, Shameless Popery, was mostly a joke. So I'd been looking at like different names for a Catholic blog. And this is back in like 2009 when Catholic blogging is just kind of coming into its own in a big way. And all the names I'm coming up with are way too like overly serious, uh, like Catholicism contra mundum and like all these like these names that just take themselves too seriously. And I knew that, but I couldn't come up with anything. And I'm actually sitting in class in law school next to one of my best friends who is Dutch Reformed. And I just kind of explained the problem to him. It might have been between between classes. We'll, we'll assume that for, for our own sake. And without missing a beat, he just says, shameless popery. And it just... <laughs> And he was joking, but I was like, no, that's perfect. Like that, it captures like, oh, this is a person who's Catholic, who likes being Catholic, uh, who wants to defend the Catholic distinctives, uh, but doesn't take themselves too seriously. So it, it was just like one of those, I mean, maybe providential moments. So that's how I sort of like got into that little niche. But even then, like 10 years ago, there was this sense. I mean, I had a lot of good Protestant friends and people who... We had a lot of respect for each other, but there were certain issues we didn't agree on doctrinally. And the one big one, the one most distinctive one, uh, was the papacy. Like, if if the Catholic side is right about the papacy, everyone should be Catholic. If the Catholic side is wrong about the papacy, nobody should be Catholic. And I want to stress that it's not that way for other doctrines. I mean, you've got Eastern Orthodox who believe in the real presence. You've got Anglicans who say they believe in the real presence. Um, you've got, there's a book on purgatory for Protestants. C.S. Lewis believes in purgatory. You know, as you go down the list, there's a book on Mary for Protestants. There's not really a book on the papacy for Protestants, because once you accept that, you kind of cease to be Protestant. So one of the things that got me interested in the book uh, was just like, well, this is the issue. Like, this kind of cuts through. It's really overwhelming a lot of times uh, when you're doing Catholic Protestant apologetics or even just like a conversation with a non-Catholic Christian you're just like, oh, yeah, like we're sort of on different stations on a lot of these things where we're kind of getting some of the same stuff or maybe we say the same thing in different ways. But then there are other things where we just start with different premises that can get overwhelming. And you've got like 50 doctrines like that. 
but having one thing that you can just focus on and say, okay, so can we agree that if if the Catholic side is right about this, you should be Catholic, and if they're wrong, I shouldn't be? And then can we further agree that one way of looking at the question is, was Peter the first pope? And you do it like that, and suddenly you have a manageable kind of bite-sized chunk. So that was one of the major things that really around maybe 2011, 2014, that range in there, I had it on my heart to kind of do something on that. Uh, but then after Pope Francis's election and all of the kind of confusion and everything that I saw from other Catholics, where people were really worried about things he'd said or just troubled about things, I thought, you know what, like, a lot of Catholic stuff can seem a little triumphalistic, like, hey, you Protestants have all that chaos over there, but our house is totally clean. And any Catholic knows that's not true. Like, any Catholic knows we've got a lot of chaos, confusion, uh, dissension, and all that within our own ranks. And so being able to write something that, that doesn't take that triumphalistic tone, that doesn't pretend the problems don't exist, that was kind of the other piece that I think both of those needed to be in place uh, to write something that wasn't just sort of same old, same old Catholic apologetics. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, obviously, um, listeners of the Popecast should know that well by now that there's lots of dirty laundry. I mean, that's that's one of my personal favorite things about learning about the papacy itself. Um, and it this germinated out of, uh, for, um, for you, Joe, this germinated out of a daily email series that I wrote about four years ago where I was learning about all these things for the same at the same time. It's like, okay, there's 80 popes who are saints, but does that mean that the other 160 or whatever were just complete scoundrels? No, it was, you know, they're like you and me. They have their own little vices, but they're mostly good, but they're kind of wrestling with different things. But um, yeah, in any case, I like that. And that was a good, that's a good segue into uh, the next question I had. So you start the book with kind of an ironic story. So you mentioned Pope Francis, obviously I would say a lot of the stuff that, that people get up in arms about, um, are, is misunderstood, but this is a, a legitimately confusing, concerning story. The story in, in 2016 that you start the book with, Pope Francis speaking rather controversially on a on a particular subject. How it, and but that how it purified your thoughts on the papacy itself. So can you speak a little more into that? Yeah, I sure. How, can. how yeah, just how a controversial papal statement can actually prove the legitimacy of something like like the papacy. Maybe how the bad popes can prove the the doctrine of infallibility, even maybe more broadly, but um, the part that obedience played into that too. I really liked um, that aspect as well. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I'd say speaking personally, right. Uh, I love JP two. In fact, JP two is my license plate. Like it's, it's, you know, personal devotion of mine and my wife's her white license plate is way too much. So, you know, you kind of get a sense for where. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and then, yeah. Uh, then Benedict the 16th. It's just, I loved him too. He's just brilliant. He's erudite. Like you read him. And you just think like, wow, I wish I was that like with it. I wish I was that prayerful. I wish I was that smart. I wish I was that eloquent. And, like everything I strive to be, he's that times a thousand. Like he would probably be a way better dad than I am to my own daughter. You know, like it just be like <laughs> everything you think you can do okay at, he just comes along and smokes you. And you can either be like super jealous or just like really admiring. And so he's just fantastic. And so it's easy to having grown up with that, right? Like until I was in seminary, like I was, you know, I'd gone through high school, college, law school, being an attorney, now I'm in seminary. Through that time, I'd only had two popes in my entire life. And I, I think a lot of listeners are in the same boat. And not just two popes, but two of, I, I'm willing to, you know, say two of the best popes we've had in the history of the church. When yeah, you look agree. at like the, the clarity of their teaching and they're striving for personal holiness and everything else, like the seriousness with which they take uh, the undertaking, that is exceptional. And, and so it's almost like lightning struck twice in a row. And as a Catholic, it was really easy to just be like, oh yeah, the papacy is always like this. And like, maybe you, you know enough about history to be like, oh no, it wasn't. Like back in the 10th century, it wasn't. Or back in the Middle Ages, it wasn't. But even there, you're kind of like, yeah, but we, we got that sorted out. You know, like we, we had problems in the past. We used to have sinners become popes, but now it's, it's only saints. And there's just no divine guarantee that that's the case. So when Pope Francis uh, became pope, I was, I was one of those people who very quickly kind of realized that people were not giving him the most charitable read, weren't giving him the most charitable interpretation. And so, yeah, I would throw down and I'd say, look, you're totally misunderstanding this. You're, you're taking this out of context. You're 
interpreting these words in the least charitable light, and so on. And I think on a lot of the things, he really was being kind of unfairly uh, maligned. But that doesn't mean on everything. As you've alluded to, there are some things where, like, maybe he actually is just wrong about something. Maybe he actually is just holding his ground in a place where he needs to not be holding his ground. And so for me, the, the kind of turning point in really seeing that in a visceral kind of way uh, was in 2016 with the Zika virus. And so a reporter asked him uh, whether in response to Zika virus, so a little bit, Zika was like 2016's version of coronavirus, for those who don't remember. Um, only one of the consequences is that it causes birth defects. And mm -hmm. so it was especially affecting Latin America really hard. It still is. And... So one of the questions a reporter asked him was, in response to this, whether it would be okay to avoid pregnancy, whether that might not be the lesser of two evils. That's actually kind of words the question. Had it been Benedict, right, he would have probably clarified what we do and don't mean by avoiding pregnancy. Because pre avoiding pregnancy could mean everything from contraception to NFP to right. celibacy. Like all of those things are avoiding pregnancy. So the question is kind of vaguely worded. But that's not what Pope Francis says. Hey, had she asked like JP too, he might have given like a, an opportunity to defend the gospel of life and explain why contraception is never okay and why, you know, donum vitae, like the gift of life, is so important. Uh, but that's not what Pope Francis says either. Instead, he sort of accepts uh, the premise and just says, yeah, actually, it might be the lesser evil. And he gives this probably apocryphal story on Paul VI allowing nuns in Africa to use contraceptives to mm -hmm. avoid uh, pregnancy from rape. Now, there's a, that's a whole other realm, morally speaking, that would be really interesting to get into, but is, is kind of far afield from the book. Yeah. Uh, but he, he makes this kind of ambiguous statement, defends it with kind of a spurious story, and then says, avoiding a pregnancy is not an absolute evil. In certain cases, uh, it, it's clear, but then he talks about it in terms of a, a conflict between the fifth and sixth commandments. So it's not just that he's giving kind of unclear advice. It seems like it's reversing everything the church has ever taught about contraception. Uh, but he's doing it by saying, maybe the 10 commandments contradict each other in this spot, which is just obviously impossible as an answer. And anyone right. wondering about that, JP2 wrote about how that's impossible in Veritatis Splendor. But you cannot say God contradicts God. You cannot say the moral law contradicts the moral law. So if you find yourself in a situation where you think obeying God requires disobeying God, something is, is terribly awry, and it, it's not on God's end. Um, that's kind of the shortish version. Uh, then the, popal, the, papal state, blah, the papal spokesman, you can see why I don't have the job, the papal spokesman <laughs> then comes out and says, oh yeah, when he says this, he means contraception could be okay here to avoid pregnancy. But that is just like a 180 reversal. So all of that meant that as a Catholic, you're left with a real serious kind of problem. That here the Pope, it isn't like, it's, it's no longer that ambiguous. It's no longer that like, well, maybe he said it this way and I wish he would have said it that way. Like, he's just saying something wrong. And if he's right, then Benedict and JP two and Pius XI and Paul VI and several other Popes in recent history are all wrong. And if they're right, he's right. There, there just is not a way to harmonize a yes and a no uh, without doing just total uh, disregard to, to the idea of truth. So as a, as a Catholic, you, you then have to take more seriously, what do we and don't we have to believe? Because under JP2 and under Benedict, it was easy to just say, every word that comes forth from the mouth of the Pope is infallible. Every word <laughs> is the church's mm -hmm. teaching. Every word is, you know, inspired by God. But of course, we know on one level that's not what we think. We know on one level that's not what the church believes. But it's easy to fall into that personally. Uh, and so for me, this was a real wake-up call to be like, okay, we need to have a better understanding of the contours of this. But then secondarily, uh, yeah, putting it in the context of obedience. So as a kid, like in a family, right, you, you have to honor your father and mother. There's no guarantee everything they're going to do is, is the best thing. There's no guarantee that every decision they're going to make is the best decision. But that's not the criterion either. Like, if, if your expectation was my parents are always going to make the best possible decision and my obedience to them is premised off that fact, well, the first time your parents screws up, you're going to say, I'm out. Like, 
we had an agreement and you broke it. You, you know, I was led to believe you're going to always make the best decision. And you didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so too, with the papacy, like if our expectation is everything the Pope says and does is the best possible thing, or at least not wrong, then we're holding the bar so high that when Popes inevitably don't meet it, now we've created a scandal and a crisis for ourselves that is totally unwarranted and unneeded because we're holding our, you know, the, the church to promises the church isn't making. We're holding the Pope to a standard that nobody actually believes the Pope ought to be held to. So that's, that's kind of, I know that's a long-winded answer, but that's kind of one of the, the big kind of pivotal points that shapes why this conversation needs to be had, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's good. And obviously, this episode isn't meant to be a referendum on Pope Francis, but um, more broadly, uh, you know, the obedience piece is that we're not bound necessarily to be obedient to the man, Jorge Bergoglio or Carol Votivo or Joseph Ratzinger, but to the the office of Peter, right? As you, you know, to put yourself in, in under submission of like if both of your parents die. Um, God forbid, and when you're a kid and you go and get adopted or you go live with your aunt and uncle or whatever, that you you become under the headship of them, maybe just as a as a random analogy, but um, right? Is that kind of the obedience piece yeah, you were getting? Yeah, at? absolutely. So I, I didn't really spell that out far enough. Let me let me give a, a couple examples with that. Uh, Aquinas talks about respect for office and respect for person. That there's a certain respect that you owe a person by virtue of the office that they hold. For instance, your priest, your bishop, the pope. Uh, there's also respect for person. So in addition to being Pope, JP2 is a saint and a great theologian and a great philosopher. That's respect for person. And the two can often be blended in ways where you don't really know uh, which one is which. And you don't often have to know which one's which. Like if if your dad is a great dad and you respect him, you don't necessarily know, like, do I respect him because he's my dad or do I respect him because he's a great dad and a great man? Like those things kind of blend together. Mm -hmm. uh, they're the technical term is notionally distinct. They're distinct thoughts, but in reality, they're often intermixed. And so it's really with a bad dad that you get to see what real respect for a father looks like, because then you're not just respecting how great the dad is; you're actually respecting the the office, so to speak. Likewise, when a pope isn't clear, when he says things that are actually bad, that's when you get to see okay, how much do I respect the office or how much did I just happen to respect the last two occupants of it? That's where the rubber really hits the road. Um, John Henry Cardinal Newman talks about this, looking at the early church, that one of the reasons we don't have that many clear statements about the authority of the Pope in the early church is because the first popes were fantastic. And mm -hmm. so there just wasn't a big like, well, you have to obey him because everyone's going to. You know, mm -hmm. if you're in an office meeting and one guy is just throwing out amazing ideas. Everyone's going to do those ideas. It doesn't matter whether he's technically the boss or not. It's like, that idea was brilliant. That idea was brilliant. But when he starts throwing out some like uh, mediocre ideas, then it might matter whether or not he's in, in a position of authority. Like the authority part really comes in uh, when disagreement or dissension kind of arises. That, you know, you're not pulling your badge, so to speak unless you're in a position that requires you to pull your badge. You, you know, if you're pulling rank, if you're if you're saying, no, I'm an authority and you have to do this, that's a sign that things aren't going just smoothly or you wouldn't have to. Um, to give just an example, uh, Pope, Inno Pope Innocent III is one of the most amazing popes in the history of the church. Mm -hmm. He doesn't make a bunch of like bombastic statements about papal authority. A century later, when the papacy is degraded quite a bit in the eyes of Europe, Boniface VIII does. He throws his weight around a lot more because he has to throw his weight around a lot more. Whereas right. Innocent can do it without making big declarations about his power. So even in that, like you, you see in the history of the papacy, popes leaning on their authority much more when they can't just persuade. So mm -hmm. it shows this distinction between the authority of office and the authority of the man or the respect owed to the man himself, that some occupants of the office just carry with them a certain gravitas or, or have a reputation of holiness or whatever it is. So it's actually in seeing the differences between Francis and Benedict and how they're received that we can actually uncover a little bit of what is this they have in common uh, by virtue of being popes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's always been interesting just to, for myself to, to, 
to, for me to remind myself that the styles are just so drastically different. Like a Jesuit Pope who's lived life in an impoverished com- country is not going to be the same as a, a Pope like Benedict XVI, who like begrudgingly was, you know, put up as the, the um, head of the CDF and was thrust into the papacy when he would just rather like go back and live in the countryside and write poetry and theology. Right. Those two men are not going to be the same. But yeah, it's always struck me as interesting that, the papacy was never necessarily meant to be this globally kind of, you know, with this global attention on on the pope. The pope is obviously the chief pastor of the church, but like we have a pre, we have a pastor at our parish, or we have a pastor at our or a bishop in our local church, local diocese for a reason. Like the pope is not necessarily supposed to be speaking into all of our lives directly. I think Pope Francis tries as much as he can because that's just the kind of guy he is. But at the same time, like we were never really meant to be paying attention and hanging on the Pope's every word, right? Yeah. So one of the things that we just haven't really fully accounted for is globalization and the shift in telecommunications, right? Like everything you can at a moment's notice decide that you want to see what's happening in the Vatican right now. Just like go over and, you know, open the YouTube page and see what they're doing in St. Peter's Square. And you can find the latest like uh, Sunday mass or Wednesday audience or whatever you want from the Pope. And that is, to put it mildly, not the situation the first 19 <laughs> centuries of the church faced. Yeah, 19 and a half, probably. Yeah, really. Because <laughs> And, and even, even more than that, really, because, you know, Paul VI wasn't a big globetrotter, really is John Paul II, that he's the first pope to be like all over the world and really takes this role as kind of the global shepherd very seriously. And he sees this sort of, ability uh, for the Pope to really make a huge difference around the church. I mean, so this isn't a perfect analogy, but um, my Archbishop, Archbishop Nelman, tries to go to every one of the churches in his diocese, which is a great thing to do as Bishop. Mm -hmm. If he was so effective doing that, if he was able to just zip around, then maybe people would not even care what the pastor had to say because the Bishop is there all the time or whatever it is, you know? Uh, that would be a danger, a certain sort of uh, limitation to that is they could avoid the more local authority because there's somebody bigger and, and more important and, you know, so on. So it is with the papacy. Like we're in an age of celebrity popes and it's a double-edged sword. On the right. one hand, it's really amazing the influence you get like a, a holy person like JP2. You look at the way, you know, the Poles respond to him and just start chanting, we want God, and it helps lead to the end of communism. That's pretty darn cool. Or, (laughs) you know, you you look at even like all these conversions that happen from like World Youth Days. And like, I know of several people who their encounter as a kid going to like World Youth Day, whatever it was, charted the rest of their life, like a different course from where they were to where they are now. Uh, And it had this tremendous impact. So, John Paul II, I think he saw the unique skills he had as a former actor, as a person who's very comfortable on a public stage, and kind of the unique opportunities the world was presenting in terms of increased uh, transportation, communication, and and so on. And and he really embraced it. And I think even Benedict was kind of a more begrudging participant in this. You know, as you mentioned, I think if there was like a really nice study or library somewhere with a good chapel, that might have been his preferred domain, but he sort of entered <laughs> this global stage as well. And and Francis has done so as well. And Francis, has, he has a great charm to him. He has a pastoral heart. And I think people really do respond well to that. So we're in the age of sort of the celebrity pope. The danger with that, as I think uh, you've already alluded, is that the church isn't just the pope and then all of us. Like there's a little more of a hierarchy than that, right? And so... The successors to the apostles include the bishops. The bishops are not just middlemen for the Pope, and they are actual successors to the apostles. And you've got one in your diocese, whether you love him or hate him or don't really know who he is. Uh, But the danger that we just kind of ignore the local apostolic representation that we have uh, because the Pope is more interesting or cooler. And I think that that was already, that's been a temptation for decades. I think with coronavirus, with people being shut in, um, that's been amplified because, you know, people for a long time were getting mass online and you could, you know, state lines don't matter. You could be like, well, I'm going to listen to mass. You know, we, we watched 
mass in Ireland, you know, all sorts of like everywhere. Oh, yeah. like, it's like globe trot right now from the comfort of your home. Uh, that erodes something of the particularity of the locality of the incarnation of the church, that the church is something bodily and real and local and you can reach out and touch it. All of that has been threatened in a certain way, but it's being shut up in kind of the digital realm. And mm -hmm. I think in that, a lot of people are in a situation where they might have seen the Pope more often in the last six months than they've seen their own bishop or maybe their own pastor. Uh, right. That's not how it should be in the church. And hopefully that won't be that way for much longer. Right. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, yeah, we went to shout out to Father Ryan Hildebrand over in Indiana. We um, we went scare quotes, went to mass with him a couple of times uh, back in March, but it was great. Yeah. But I think it's, it's interesting. So um, th this is kind of an ironic next question and, and it's pretty broad, but despite all that, um, why do you think the the office of the papacy is still important today, both as an institution and, and whoever the man is himself, whether it's Francis or John Paul or Benedict or whoever, um, both for Catholics and even non-Catholics? Yeah. So maybe the way to kind of wrap up several of these threads, uh, there's a thing Father Joseph Ratzinger wrote back when he was a parish priest about how the Pope is both Petros, um, Peter, Rock. And Scandalin, which is like the rock of stumbling. So in Matthew 16, Jesus gives Peter both of these titles, so to speak. He, you know, famously changes his name from Simon to Peter, which means rock. But then shortly after that, when Peter says, God forbid, Lord, you, you know, you shouldn't have to go to the cross. Don't worry about that. He says, get behind me, Satan. You become a hindrance to me. Well, that word hindrance is like the rock that gets in the way. Ooh, and interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's a play on Peter's new title. It's a play on his name. <laughs> and so Ratzinger points out, like, this is just, like, the essence of the papacy. Now, we've talked a fair amount so far about the way the Pope can be a scandal, the way he can be a stumbling block, the way he can be an obstruction. We don't want to ever lose sight of this other that other half. He can be a patro, a patros, a, a rock. Um, and one of the major ways that he does that is being a visible icon of unity, is the way some of the Eastern Fathers talk about it. That you can see the Catholic Church when you see the Pope. But there's a real sense in which, like, if you want to know where the church is, you can point to this guy and say, well, he's the head of the local Catholic, he's the head of the global Catholic Church, he's the head of the Catholic Church on Earth. We can, it, it, it actually makes it more present for us. And so there is this unifying effect the Pope has. So for all of the controversies, for all of the divisions, for all the scandals, there is still this process for working things out within the confines of the Catholic Church. Uh, let me take just one example. The controversy over the wills of Christ. Uh, the question was, does Christ have a human will or not? Right. And the Patriarch of Constantinople said no. Maximus the Confessor said yes. The Emperor said no and tore out Maximus's tongue and cut off his arm. Uh, no big deal. And and the Pope said, no, yes, he does. He, he does have a, a human will. And eventually the Third Council of Constantinople settled the fact. So it was a messy process. And it was a messy process that still resulted in, in the truth coming out and unity kind of coming forth. And eventually uh, this, this controversy just sort of died out because people realized like, okay, yeah, Christ does have a human will. This is part of what it is for him to be fully God and fully man. And so when he says, not my will, but yours be done, he is referring to his human will in relation to the divine will of the Father. Flash forward to the modern world. Two of the biggest lights of evangelicalism were Norm Geisler, who just died last year, and a student of his, William Lane Craig. Anyone who does Catholic Protestant apologetics, sorry, like just Christian apologetics more broadly, Craig is one of the greatest evangelical thinkers, right. probably of all time. The thing is, He's a heretic. He denies that Christ has a human will. He takes Sergius's position. He takes a position that was rejected by the Third Council of Constantinople. Interesting. He, yeah, he's joined in this by J.P. Moreland, who is a Biola professor, another one of these big heavy hitters. So Craig's position is that the Orthodox position is actually Nestorian, that it's actually heretical. He studied under Geisler, who takes the opposite position, who takes the orthodox position, who says Craig's position is heretical. So if you're an evangelical Christian, you're in this situation where these two people who are probably much smarter and better read than you and maybe holier than you are disagreeing on an issue both of them agree is a massive Christological question. 
And so the question should be, how in the world can an ordinary believer come to know the truth in the face of that? And it doesn't seem like there's an easy answer to that. There's no mechanism to produce truth, to produce proper interpretation of Scripture. Both sides agree on what the Bible says. Both sides are aware of Jesus' statement in the garden. Mm-hmm. Craig says, oh, no, he's referring to the will of the Son and the will of the Father within the Trinity and actually creating some sort of tension on a Trinitarian level. Like, Craig's position is, is full of Christological and Trinitarian implications. We don't really want to go down. But you're not better read than he is. You're not better studied than he is. You don't know philosophy better than he does. Like, when you want a book on Christian philosophy, his book is the book. Like, his book <laughs> is the yeah. book that, like, is all the rage right now among Christian philosophers because it's fantastic, other than this six-page section where he lays out <laughs> some rank heresy. <laughs> and so the cool thing about the papacy is that we don't have to worry about that. For all of the failings of Catholic theologians, for all the failings of Catholic thinkers, there's still a mechanism by which we can know the truth, by which we can sort out these disputes, these controversies, so that even if you're wrong for a while, you're not just going to be wrong forever. We're watching this sort of unwinding. We're not having to relitigate things that the early church already resolved, and now Protestantism is just treating them as an open question again. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe one of the clearest ways you can see no, the Pope actually does matter. Uh, and like the Pope plays a critical role in this story with the Lateran Council of 649, a local synod, which Pope Martin, he really went to bat against the emperor and said, no, the emperor is heretical. Like, this is wrong. And and he paid for it. He was exiled and died in exile. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, you can't tell the history of orthodoxy and how we came to believe one thing without the papacy. And once you get rid of that, people stop believing one thing. And if you want to see that, literally just look at Protestants. Right. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, you can tell a tree by its fruits, too. I mean, I think Pope Paul VI will probably be the same like 100 years from now, where the church has continued to divide on the issue of contraception and why that's, you know, illicit. Um, but that's, yeah, that's that's for that's another conversation. But yeah, I think that that's great. So um, well, actually, if I may, there is a, oh, yeah, an important point that you're making right there. We need to keep very clear a difference. There's a difference between someone who says the church teaches this, but I don't believe it. And someone who says, I don't know what the church believes because there's not one visible church teaching one thing. In the case of the Catholic church, you have the Catholic teaching, and then you have people who dissent from the Catholic teaching in practice or in theory. In the case of Protestantism, there isn't the Protestant church. There isn't the Protestant teaching. There isn't, here's what all Protestants know to be true, or here's what the governing body of Protestantism teaches. You have certain theologians say this, some say that, some say the other thing. To put it in the context of Matthew 16, it's when when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? The answers are some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. Mm-hmm. There's two things to note there. When there isn't a governing structure, when there isn't this kind of authority led by God, you get a diversity of contradictory answers. And in this case, all of the answers were wrong. And so I'd say with Protestantism, you see something different. You see a diversity of contradictory answers. Anyone who thinks like, oh, this is a settled question, probably just doesn't know about the question, whatever it is within Protestantism. Uh, like the only way you get any kind of doctrinal unity in Protestantism is through no true Scotsman kind of fallacies. In other words, you can say anyone who rejects the Trinity is no longer considered Protestant. Okay, well, you've just defined all of your opponents as not Protestants. They might think, you know, like oneness Pentecostals are definitely part of the Protestant, like, historical movement. They deny the Trinity. So in other words, like, we have to just keep in mind, like, the difference between a dissenter who knows the truth and rejects it and someone who, for the best of their ability, can't find the truth because you've gotten rid of all of the structures by which we determine what Mm -hmm. truth is. Right. What is it that there's an analogy that um, I think it might have been Steve Ray who who put forth the analogy like, you know, Christianity sat on a big giant ship at the time of Jesus with Jesus driving the boat. And then, you know, 1500 years went by and it was fine. And then people started building other boats. And then pretty soon there were so many boats that people started being born on boats that were so far away from the main ship that they had no idea. I always thought that would. Yeah, that resonated yeah, a lot. yeah I think that captures it really well. Yeah. OK, so uh, maybe somewhat related to this. So it seems like. Lately, at least, the the standard divisions in anti-Catholicism, the infighting sort of within like mainline Christianity have somewhat disappeared, or at least in some context have disappeared, both, I I think, because Pope Francis can seem like a more 
maybe innocuous type figure than John Paul and Benedict. But then also considering that all Christians are under attack when it comes to things like, you know, public displays of faith and the sanctity of life, we're all on the same side. But there are still those who, you know, insist that the Pope is the Antichrist <laughs> or that the church is the whore of Babylon or um, or even that the church has descended into modernism and, is, and isn't to be trusted or something like that, right? So what do you say to those types of objections? Yeah, so those are kind of two different extremes on a spectrum. And so those people probably don't have a lot to say to, I mean, I guess some of them, some of them are going to try to hold both of those views, but a lot of the anti-modernists and a lot of the Pope is the Antichrist people are, are different folks. But the, the core things I'd say in response to those and any other position kind of like those would be this. Like, the first question is, does Christ establish a visible church? And if you read what the New Testament says on this, or if you read chapter two and three of Pope Peter, you'll, you'll get a bit of a discussion on this. The answer is clearly that he does establish a visible church. Is that church structured? The answer is very clearly that it is structured. Is Peter at the head of the church? The answer is very clearly that Peter is at the head of the church. If that's true, then we can trust the visible church. In other words, when uh, take a thinker like uh, the philosopher Leo Strauss. When Strauss dies, he doesn't leave behind a church. Instead, you have a, a bunch of groups of just thinkers who are more or less in his philosophical school. And so you end up with a situation where there's like East Coast Straussians and West Coast Straussians. And they have these kind of quasi-denominations that are totally man-made. It's just followers of Strauss who've, you know, tried to carry out his teaching in one way or another. If Christ had never built a church, Christianity would look similarly. We'd have man-made denominations, each doing their best to teach what Christ taught, or maybe to modernize Christ's teaching as they saw fit. And that is, I would say, the exact situation Protestantism finds itself in. Man-made, like, no one's saying, oh, Jesus founded the Methodist Church. They're saying, oh, the Methodist Church is a man-made kind of grouping to try to give honor and glory to God. That's what you would find if Christ hadn't built the church, mm -hmm. but he did. And the church he built, you can't just say it's the invisible collection of the saved because there already was an invisible collection of the saved prior to him doing that. So, so you nullify his promise if you say it did nothing. His promise changed nothing. Everything was exactly the same before his after. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't work, right? So if instead you say, Okay, well, since that doesn't work, we have to accept this idea that Christ built a visible structured church and all the evidence points to Peter being at the head of that church. I don't have to be afraid of that church anymore. I don't have to worry that maybe the Pope is a modernist or maybe he's the Antichrist or maybe he's this, that, or the other thing because I've been told that this church is for me. And how do we know that? We'll go to John 17. In John 17, we see the only prayer of Jesus for us, meaning... Jesus explicitly prays, not just for his disciples, but those who will come to believe in the gospel through their teaching. That's us. And what does he pray? He prays that we'll all be one. Well, that oneness is humanly impossible without the church. You cannot have a billion Christians just agreeing on everything. They just all happen to agree. Like that's, that's never happened. That never will happen. And anyone who has the vaguest understanding of human fallenness and sin or the human person at all, can see that that won't ever happen. I mean, mm -hmm. I gave one example of two thinkers on one question, of two people who I trust are acting in goodwill, but I'm, multiply that problem by a billion, right? Like, you're never going to have a unified church. There's no such thing as all being one unless you can trust the church. There's a, a Methodist scholar by the name of Ben Witherington, and he argues from the Protestant perspective that Protestants have sacrificed unity for truth, and Catholics have sacrificed truth for unity. What's shocking about that is Jesus prohibits either of those options. Like, in his schema, Protestants are wrong. Like, because <laughs> Jesus said to be united, and he said, but we ignored him here so we could follow him over there. Well, you don't accept the truth if you're picking and choosing which parts of Jesus you're going to follow. So mm -hmm. you're really left with no unity and a lot of the truth gone. Because one of the parts of the truth is that all need to be one. And... Mm -hmm. To the first to in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says the same thing, you know, to be united. And he warns against this faction uh, kind of tendency that he saw the Corinthians falling into right away. So the the answer to this is that there has to be a possibility to be united in the truth. So I think the short version of the logical case for infallibility would look something like this. 
we are prohibited from going into schism and we're prohibited from accepting heresy. Those two options are off the table for anyone following Jesus. They just are because, you know, we're warned, you know, schism is a mortal sin. Galatians 5 talks about this being one of the fruits that doesn't, uh, you know, if you do this, you won't enter into the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. All of these things, right? These two things are off the table. If the Pope ever teaches something heretical and says all Christians have to believe this, I'm in a pickle because I have to either accept heresy or go into schism. And both of those doors are closed. So logically, unless God is a liar, that'll never happen. Mm -hmm. So therefore, we can believe in papal infallibility. This is one of the the reasons I think this is good, uh, kind of approaching it in this way, is people often have this idea that papal infallibility is some gift to the Pope for the Pope. But in fact, papal infallibility is ultimately a gift to us. It's a promise by God that we're never going to have to choose between heresy and schism since he told us we couldn't ever choose either of those. Uh, We'll never be in a situation called a perplexus where every option is sinful. Those, those things are, are like we're, we're saved from that. So we can be united in the truth. We can have unity and truth. And the minute we start trying to pick and choose between unity and truth, that's when we're in trouble. So I think that's why, that's why the papacy is so important. And that's why, we can trust the Pope isn't a modernist or the Antichrist or the Horror of Babylon or a fill in the blank. Right. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And and gosh, how often is it uh, to varying degrees, any of us, especially I, I, that's why I love Pope Francis for all of his, you know, warts and all is that he has been like a magnifying glass to all of our hearts, like to all of our relationships with like with the Lord and with the church that how, how much do you actually like how much are you actually willing to be like Padre Pio obedient to the church, even when you disagree vehemently with, you know, whoever the, the office holder may be, right? Or how prideful are you that you think you are right and the Pope is less Catholic than you are like, you know, fill in the blank. Um, but yeah, that's what <laughs> I kind of appreciate that. Um, but yeah, that's a beautiful answer. Thanks. Okay. So we're coming to the end of our time. Um, but one last question before we wrap things up and a little bit more lighthearted. Who would you name? I think I might know the answer to at least one of these, but who would you name as your... Your top three popes, not counting Peter, and why? Maybe start with so number three. I feel one. like I should take JP2 and Benedict out of the running because I've just been like <laughs> singing their praises this entire time. Uh, so if I want to throw out a few that aren't already covered, I'd go um, Pope Leo. Uh, Pope Leo I. He was a major player uh, in kind of the Chalcedonian debates about Christianity. And he has one of the clearest explanations of the nature and persons of Christ. And uh, he writes this um, to Flavian, the Patriarch of Constantinople, uh, what's called the Tome of, of Leo. And mm-hmm. they end up reading this at the council, and they did say Peter has spoken. Like, it's so clear, and it was clear that St. Peter is working through Leo, that, like, the history of having orthodoxy is it's inseparable from the history of these major popes like Leo stepping forth. But Leo also did a lot of other things, like just saving the city of Rome after it had been basically abandoned by the Roman Empire and had been left to barbarians. Like he, one of the reasons you see the church end up being a major landholder in Europe and a major like world player, it, it sort of started almost inadvertently by Leo. It was just abandoned to be destroyed, and and mm-hmm. the Pope was like, "We're not going to let Christians just be massacred by barbarians." <laughs> and so they just yeah. basically built up civil society. Uh, Leo's an incredible person, has some of the greatest statements on uh, the nature of his own office and a very beautiful theology of Peter and how that plays out as Pope and the connections between uh, him as the Bishop of Rome and the other Petrine See, which are the other patriarchates. So Peter was in Jerusalem. He founded the church at Antioch. Peter's disciple Mark uh, founded Alexandria. And then Constantinople is sort of descended from Rome. So the five patriarchates in the ancient church are all connected to Peter in this really beautiful way. And mm-hmm. Leo talks about this. So Leo's awesome. Uh, second, I'd go Innocent III. We talked about how different popes have different gifts. We kind of alluded to this fact. You know, like the gifts JP2 has for a kind of the public audience and the gifts Benedict has as a scholar and the gifts Francis has in this kind of pastoral way. Uh, these are different gifts and talents, and it can sometimes be an abrupt stylistic shift, depending on how much people like change. Innocent III is a good example of one of these style shifts, because 
uh, like up until his predecessor, Celestine III, you had a long string of monastic popes. And then you get Innocent III, and he is a lawyer pope. Like, he's a canon lawyer who's an incredibly well-trained theologian and canonist, but isn't a monk. And so they, the expectation at the time was a certain look of the pope, a certain kind of holiness. Mm-hmm. And Innocent's totally different. But he he's also, like, way more effective and efficient than these guys were. Because he's a lawyer and they were monks. And if you had to guess which of those two is better at paperwork. So the <laughs> amount of like paper documentation we have from Innocent dwarfs his predecessors. Like he would personally write to settle local controversies at the parish level at various oh places God. in Europe. At the same time, he does all these. And, and look, he's only Pope for, I think, 18 years from uh, 12 or 1196 to 1216. So he is Pope for a fairly short time. In that time, he has three mendicant orders that want to be founded. The Dominicans, the Franciscans, and the Waldensians. Mm-hmm. He recognizes the two of them have a Catholic spirit, and one of them doesn't. And so he condemns the Waldensians and approves the other two. The Dang. Waldensians end up going into schism and becoming just crazy. And the <laughs> other two... Uh, are these like major players in the Middle Ages? You don't get Thomas and Bonaventure without Innocent having like the docility to the Holy Spirit to say yes to the Dominicans and Franciscans and right. say no to the Waldensians. So he's this kind of forgotten player, and he's also not canonized. One of the reasons he's not canonized is because the process of making someone a saint was made a lot harder by Innocent the Third. Like he standardized <laughs> the process, like so. <laughs> So all of these things, like he's just, ah, I love him. He also, he called two crusades. He called a, a council or two. Uh, yeah, just a phenomenally effective kind of Pope. And I'm not even getting into like the way that he finessed his way through like European politics with England and France and the way mm-hmm. he would play them against each other for the preservation of the church. Brilliant, kind of mind-blowing, kind of mind-boggling guy. And just to take a more recent one, I'm going to go Pius X. Uh, mm, Pius yeah. X, unfortunately, like, his name's been a little besmirched by a certain society. But like, <laughs> uh, Pius is a fantastic... I would, if, if you read nothing else, there's an encyclical I would have you read called E. Supremi, uh, S-U-P-R-E-M-I, which he wrote when he became uh, Pope. I, I, for a, a while, I would just purposely find the first encyclical Popes had written. Because in it, they often talk about becoming Pope and what it was like for them. And he just talks about how, like, he compares himself to Anselm, who cried when he became the Archbishop of Canterbury and begged his brothers not to make him the Archbishop. <laughs> and it seems pretty clear that Pius was in a similar spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, his own election was really bizarre. At the time, uh, the, the Christian kings of Europe had a veto power over, like, nominees, basically, for the papacy. And so you wouldn't become Pope if, you know, like the Archbishop, I mean, not the, I'm sorry, the, the Emperor said no of any of these kind of Christian empires. So the Austro-Hungarian Emperor had vetoed the guy who they wanted to be Pope. And so Pius becomes Pope uh, as a result of this. And the first thing wow. he does is gets rid of the veto. And it's almost like he's just like, <laughs> don't let this happen to anyone else where they have to become Pope. Uh, it's, so he's just a fantastically humble guy who, you know, he's got this reputation as kind of a bulldog because he does go after heresy hard. Mm-hmm. But you see the humanity of him and you see the way that he's, uh, he was intimidated at becoming Pope because he saw how serious the problems were. And then you just see him really trust that God will do what God's going to do in the face of that. That's so it's pretty amazing. It's also, I don't know, maybe helpful to see how bad things were 100 years ago, 120 years ago, and just mm-hmm. be like, oh yeah, uh, the world isn't always just like going to hell in a handbasket, but it often feels like it. And, mm-hmm. and we see the way God raises people up in the midst of that. We see it in his life personally, like the way he was a saint in response to, to these kind of daunting challenges. Yeah. I need to go read more about Innocent the Third. Dang. But yeah, Pius X, I was just reading something um, about him like last week and was just super grateful. And it was just like a little bit sad for everybody who thinks that he's just basically like you know the hammer of the modernists or whatever because there's just so much more to him like john the 23rd had this huge devotion to him and i think pius x ordained him maybe like 
yeah, like at St. Peter's tomb, there's a great picture of uh, John the 23rd and his priest secretary at the, um, at the tomb of Pius X. Pius has, has this legit silver mask over his <laughs> face. Um, but anyways, yeah, I could go on for forever. So yeah, well, thanks for those. Those are, those are three great ones. Um, so as we wrap up, then where can folks find your book and, and your writing and, and anything else you'd like to mention? Okay, so Pope Peter, you can get on shop, shop.catholic.com, which is his Catholic Answers website. Um, I have another book called Who Am I, Lord? Finding Your Identity in Christ. You can get that through OSV. You can also get both books through Amazon, if that's easier. Um, my blog is Shameless Popery, as you mentioned, P-O-P-E-R-Y, although I've had people who Googled Shameless Popery spelled like P-O-P, or sorry, P-O-T-P-U-R-R-I, and it'll <laughs> still, Google can you know, cover a, a multitude of errors. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's shamelesspopery.com. Uh, and then you can hear some of the audio stuff I've done at schooloffaith.com. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah, Joe, thanks again. This was, this was great. Um, I could do this all day and I'm sure, uh, from the sound of it, you probably could too talk about all this stuff. So super grateful. I'd love to have you on again in the future if, if it works out, but, um, yeah, but yeah this is fantastic. I'd love to, I love nerding out about the Pope as you might've been able to tell. <laughs> yeah. Thanks Joe. Well, that's it for this week. So just a couple more things here before we sign off. So you'll find in the show notes links to buy Joe's book, Pope Peter. Uh, again, excellent, excellent book. Can't recommend that enough. Also, if you aren't already, uh, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash the podcast to join us as a supporter for a couple of bucks per episode. Your patronage helps cover things like our hosting costs, the ability to, to produce these new episodes, uh, plus patrons get things like early access to new episodes and other great freebies depending on your per episode tier. Also, uh, if you haven't already, thanks to those who, who have rated us in the past week, uh, but be sure to head over to iTunes, leave a rating and a review. Uh, we'll be sure to read those reviews out on a future episode of the show for those who, who leave those. And then lastly, if you uh, aren't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at the Popecast for daily Pope quotes and old photos. So as we sign off, let us give thanks for the gift of the papacy as we have so many of the times here at the Popecast. Until next time.